All right, good morning, New Life East. It is great to be here with you this morning. As I said just a few minutes ago, my name is Jason Jackson. I serve as the associate pastor at New Life Downtown. And uh, Pastor Andrew and Pastor Colin graciously invited me to come and be here with you all this morning uh, to lead your services here at Grand Peak Academy. For those of you that are here in the room, it's great to see you. A lot of you with kids in the room today. Hi, kiddos. How are you? And we know a lot of you watching home online as well. We love you. We hope that you are safe and well. We're continuing this morning our series called The Last Word through the last book in the Bible, that book of Revelation that has confounded and confused so many for so many years. And we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Ben Witherington III, who is one of the world's leading New Testament scholars. He teaches New Testament at my alma mater, Asbury Theological Seminary, and he's actually been in Colorado Springs since Wednesday night. Uh, and teaching basically nonstop since he arrived in town. Uh, Asbury just opened a new extension site in Colorado Springs in the World Prayer Center at New Life North. And Dr. Witherington's been in to teach the first hybrid class. He's been teaching a New Testament introduction class Thursday night, all day Friday, all day Saturday. Led the Friday night service, two services this morning. New Life downtown tonight, so he is getting his work in. He's been running hard, uh, but he's been doing this his whole life. He's written over 60 books, including a commentary on every book in the New Testament, as well as books that are just designed to help people try to understand hard things. This is his book called Revelation and the End Times. Uh, unraveling God's message of hope. It's just a great book for helping people get introduced to the book of Revelation and try to understand what's going on there. He said several of his books have been rated book of the year in biblical studies by Christianity Today. Uh, and he's, he's a brilliant mind. But what I love so much about Dr. Witherington is he's not just a brilliant mind. He loves Jesus and he loves the church. He has given his life toward helping the church live out our calling to Jesus. So he's here today to help us understand some of the more difficult passages in Revelation. So would you join me in welcoming Dr. Ben Witherington III. And as we get started today, friends, I just want to say a couple of things as kind of a setup. First of all, I want to invite us all to be learners today, that we have an opportunity today to sit with one of the preeminent, one of the foremost, one of the leading scholars on the planet. It's an opportunity for us to learn. And actually, that's what a disciple is. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a student. So there are times that Jesus is teaching us brand new things. And there's times that Jesus is teaching us to unlearn old things and learn new things because he has something greater for us to hold on to. And so as learners, I want us just to come to this time with an open mind, not so open as Dr. Withering says that your brain falls out, uh, but just an open mind and an open heart, uh, a time to listen and to consider and maybe even to reconsider some things. Because uh, as we go through and look at these, uh, these passages, I think there's times you're going to be challenged. There's times that maybe there'll be things said like, oh, I haven't heard that before or I heard something differently before. 
And it's going to be an opportunity to say, okay, Jesus, teach me and show me what is happening here. Because when we think about Revelation, there is a lot of perspectives about this book out there. And some of them are really popular. But popularity does not always equate with credibility. It doesn't always mean that just because this has become popular, this is actually what John and his first hearers would have heard and understood about this book. So, Dr. Witherington, as a way to kind of get us back into the conversation, uh, would you just help us kind of frame our conversation today? What kind of book is Revelation, and how should we as the people of God approach it? Well, the first thing to say is, this is not a book for beginners. <laughs> if you're starting to read the Bible, just beginning to really do serious Bible study, do not begin with the book of Revelation. There's a reason it's the last book in the freaking Bible. You get my picture. Okay, so what kind of book is it? It's got an epistolary framework, but basically it's a collection of John's visions. It's visionary prophecy, or as it's often called, apocalyptic prophecy. And what's being revealed in this book is images of heaven, images of earth, and telling us what now is, what is yet to come, and how the story's going to end. Now, the way that this is presented is in metaphorical language, because, I mean, you know, if a human being is asked to describe what's going on in heaven, they're going to say, it was like, it was like, it was like, because frankly, it's much greater than our human vocabulary. Yeah. So this is analogical or comparative language, and it uses whopper metaphors about beasts and gnarly dragons and this, that, and the other. I mean, it's kind of like reading portions of the Lord of the Rings. But the most important thing I can say to you about this is it's not fiction, it's describing reality in a metaphorical way. So it really is referential, but it's not a literal description of anything. Let me tell you briefly a little story. So right after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, I borrowed my dad's 1955 Chevrolet and me and my best buddy Doug Harris drove up to the Blue Ridge Parkway in the mountains of North Carolina to have a fun weekend. And we were driving along and all of a sudden the clutch blew out. Now if you've ever been to the Bluegrass Parkway, well there's no gas stations on the Bluegrass Parkway and you can't go over 45 miles an hour either. So we had to be pushed down a ramp into a Texaco station, and as the Bible says, my countenance fell, because that mechanic was no good at all. He didn't even know it was the clutch that was blown out. So we decided to hitchhike back to High Point, our hometown in the middle of the state. And we were immediately picked up by two mountain folk, driving a 48 Plymouth, dressed in jet black. These were the first people that offered us a ride. We got in the car. And Doug, who is a lawyer, has been a lawyer for the last 35 years and is very chatty, said to the old man who was driving, well, what do you think about Neil Armstrong walking on the moon? He replied, that's all fake. That's a television stunt. Never happened. Doug said, well, what about all those beautiful pictures of the earth revolving blue and beautiful? The world is not round, mister. <laughs> Really, says Doug. Now, Doug did not recognize invincible ignorance when he saw it. 
So he was prone to argue even before he became a lawyer. And I kept saying, shut up, Doug, we need to ride. <laughs> We're quiet. But he said, well, why don't you believe the world is round? And he said, it says in the book of Revelations, the angels will stand on the four corners of the earth. There can't be four corners if it's round. Wow. That's right. Now, the problem with this gentleman is not that he took the book of Revelation. And by the way, if you run into somebody that calls its Revelations plural, stop listening then. <laughs> They don't even know the name of the book, okay? The problem is not that he took the Bible seriously. The problem is he took metaphorical language literally. What that text was teaching is that angels will gather God's people from all corners of the earth when Christ returns. It was not teaching geography. It was teaching theology. Yeah. So you need to know the subject matter of the Bible. That book is full of that kind of metaphorical language. And it really is talking about a reality, but not in a literal way. Yeah. And we're going to dive into some of those in just a second. But the, the thought there is that you, can, you don't have to take the Bible literally, particularly these kind of places where we see this kind of imagery and metaphorical language. You don't have to take those kind of things literally to take it seriously. But you know, there's actually a way of thinking about this in terms of how is this imagery functioning? What's happening here? And so today we're diving into some of that in Revelation 12 and 13. And Revelation 12 opens this way. It says, Then I saw a great sign that appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant, and she cried out because she was in labor, in pain from giving birth. And then there's another sign, one of these beasts that he's talking about, a great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten thorns and seven royal crowns on his head. And as the passage goes on, we see that this dragon is trying to devour this child and the woman is running to the desert and there's a battle with Michael the archangel and the dragon's being thrown to the earth and then the dragon's chasing the woman around. I mean, it is unbelievable. So Dr. Witherington, what's going on there? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the woman is a symbol of the people of God. And it has both a collective character, the whole people of God, who are under persecution, prosecution, and execution by the powers of darkness. But it also has a very specific reference to Mary, who gives birth to Jesus. And there is a very brief reference to her giving birth to a child and then it fast forwards to the ascension <laughs> he's born and then suddenly he's taken up into heaven by means of the ascension but who's left on earth is the people of God yeah and here's the most important thing maybe that I'm going to say to you this morning the people of God are not taken out of the world when times get bad the people of God are not taken out of the world when pandemics or earthquakes or the powers of darkness start taking control. They are protected in the world. Yeah. They are protected in the world. So you have this image of the woman fleeing into the desert, way out in the middle of nowhere, and old dragon breath is trying to flood her out. And you know what? He just can't get the job done. Really, the book of Revelation is a downer for, for Satan. He falls from <laughs> heaven to earth, 
earth to the pit in Revelation 20, pit to the lake of fire. He's going down, down, down. So, you know, he's not having a good day in the book of Revelation. But nonetheless, the powers of darkness are real and they can produce persecution, prosecution, execution, all kinds of suffering of God's people. The good news is that that cannot touch your spiritual salvation, even if you have to give your life in service to the Lord. Really, the book of Revelation is the book of martyrs. It's all about, not. it's not about, let's get ready to rumble. No, it's about, let's be prepared to be suffering, even unto death, if God should call us to that. It's the book of martyrs is what it is. In fact, the word martus, from which we get the word martyr, means witness. We're being called to witness unto death, and we're given a great promise. Greater is he who is in us than any of these forces in the world. Paul puts it this way, neither height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. And that's exactly how that chapter even ends. You get to the end of chapter 12 and it says, so the dragon was furious with the woman and he went off to make war against the rest of her children on those who keep God's commandments and hold firmly to the witness of Jesus. That we see this kind of ongoing persecution and suffering that happens for the people of God. And remember, for those seven churches that John's writing to, this is their reality in the Roman Empire. Yes. That they are being persecuted. They are being prosecuted. They are being executed because of their faith in Jesus. And this book is written as a means to encourage them right. to continue to keep the faith in the midst of these things. And let me just say to you, that this book is not written especially about our generation. This is a book of reality check and encouragement for every generation of Christian history over the last 2,000 plus years. It's always had a meaning to the church. It yeah. wasn't, it's not just for all of a sudden we are going to know the truth in the 21st century. Because why? Because suffering, pandemics, earthquakes, the powers and principalities have been at work in every generation of Christian history. Yeah. And these means of suffering are generic. They happen in every age of, of Christian history, not just the last age of Christian history. So it's always had a meaning for the people of God. And the meaning is not this. We're going to reveal today the secret of exactly when Jesus is coming back. Every time some prophet, preacher, or whoever has sought to give you that kind of timetable, there's been a 100% failure rate. <laughs> if anybody tells you that they know exactly when X, Y, and Z is going to happen in the end times, just turn off the television because they have no clue. Yep. Jesus said that he would come like a thief in the night. That is, he will return at a surprising time. Yeah when we might least expect it. And he is not going to give us a timetable between now and then. Why not? He gives us enough knowledge about our future to give us hope, but not so much that we don't have to live by faith every day. Yes. Let me say that again. 
He reveals enough of the future to give us hope, especially that God is in control and is in a good mood, okay? <laughs> but not so much that we don't have to live by faith every day. We're not going to be given a timetable by any Bible book. Indeed, Jesus in Mark 13, 32 says, Of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son while he was on earth. Only the Father knows, and the Father isn't telling. <laughs> See, here's the thing. It's not the timing of the end that matters. It's the fact that yeah. God is going to resolve all these issues of justice and mercy and redemption and judgment. Yeah. And we're supposed to leave the judgment in God's hands. Yeah. When you get to Revelation chapter 6, after the great worship scenes in 4 and 5, when you get to chapter 6, we are told that nobody is worthy to unseal the seals or have the trumpets blow or pour out the bowls. Nobody is worthy of judging the earth but Jesus Christ yep. himself. And those judgments between Revelation 6 and 19 are not even final judgments. They're preliminary, they're disciplinary, and they're meant to lead us to repentance. Yep. Maybe, just maybe, what's happening to us now is meant to lead us to repentance, to get on our knees and say, Lord, where have we gone wrong and how can we do better? But the thing is, all of that is in God's control, not ours. Yeah. We are not the judges of the earth. God in Christ is. And hear this good news. Our judge is our redeemer. Yeah. Our judge is the slain lamb on the throne in heaven. He's the one who's coming back. When Jesus says, I'll be back, he'll be back. But in God's good time, not on our watch. So, Christians should live their lives not by selling everything and standing out on the street corner and looking up in the sky. They should live their lives every day ready to go but happy to stay. Hmm. That's how they should live their lives. With a certain sense of contingency about this life and realizing we already have everlasting life which begins in this life and continues into eternity. That's the bigger picture that he's painting. Now one more thing, about those saints under the altar in Revelation 6, did you notice they were cranky? <laughs> They're up there singing the blues. My mama done told me I'm having a bad, I mean, imagine going to heaven and singing the blues, really? Come on now. They're up there going, how long, oh Lord? because they want justice on the earth. Yes. Well, we get impatient and we want that too, you know? And they're given a choir robe and told to hush. <laughs> It'll be in God's good time. Heaven is an ultra clean bus station on the way to the new heaven and the new earth. If you read all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, our final destination is not somewhere out there. <laughs> Our final destination is right down here in the new earth when Jesus returns and raises the dead and wipes away every tear from every eye. Yeah. 
and eliminates all sin and suffering and sorrow and disease, decay and death. Can I get an amen? Amen. Don't you want to go there? Yes. Don't you want to be there? God is not going to exchange all of this beautiful creation, because he's the creator of God, for a few scrawny souls in heaven. That's not the final scenario. No, the final picture is that we will obtain resurrection bodies like that of Jesus, and we will dwell with him and the Father and the Spirit on earth forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, (laughs) amen. Amen. That's the end of the Bible. That's the story. And I'm sticking to it. (laughs) So after Revelation chapter 12, we get this woman and the child and the dragon. And then we get into Revelation 13, which is one of the more uh, often talked about chapters in Revelation and often misunderstood. It's about a beast and the mark of the beast and the number 666. You can go and read all of this sort of language. But Dr. Witherington, would you help us understand how John and his churches would have understood the beast and the mark and that, uh, that number, 666. Sure, and I'm going to try not to do what my grandmother told me not to do. Don't complexify the matter. I'm, I'm going to try to make it clear to you. If you look at the beast stuff, it obviously is drawing on the prophecies in the book of Daniel, where there are four beasts with heads with horns. And they represent very clearly four beastly empires. And they are superseded by one like a son of man who is human and brings in a humane empire. You see the difference here? The beasts represent inhumane rulers and empires. Like the Roman Empire, son of man is none other than Jesus himself who will inaugurate and has already inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth, which will endure forever. Empires, nations rise and fall in human history. They don't have the final say Mm -hmm. about God's plan for human history. So when you get to chapter 13, the beast is indeed the Roman empire and the head of the beast is indeed Dear old Mr. 666. Now, they didn't have Arabic numbers back then. Are you with me now? No, one, two, three, four, five. I mean, look at look at how Romans counted. I, 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 V, V, X, L, M, C. They're letters of the alphabet. All ancient peoples counted by letters of the alphabet. And so letters of the alphabet had numerical value. Are you with me so far? Letters of the alphabet had numerical values. Well, now here's the interesting thing. There was a coin in the time of Nero that had a picture of fat-faced Nero on it. They had living emperors on their coins, not dead presidents. And it said... Neron Kaiser Divifilii Augusti, translated means Nero Caesar, the divine son of Augustus. Are you with me now? Now, you're about to have an aha moment. If you add up the numerical value of those Latin letters, guess what number comes up? Six, six, 
6. In the first instance, the beastly head of the beastly emperor was the Roman emperor, Nero himself. But you see, this is an archetype because any world ruler who is like that can fit for that portrait. Adolf Hitler would fit for that portrait in World War II. So what we're being told is that all throughout Christian history, there will be gnarly rulers who need to go down for the count. Yeah. Point number one. That has happened all throughout Christian history. It keeps on happening in Christian history. No Christian should be surprised and that when you get to the end of this whole process, before Jesus comes, there's still going to be gnarly, beastly rulers on the earth until Jesus comes to rectify the matter, until the rider on the white horse shows up and says, you're finished. Yeah. And I might add that all this business about there's going to be a battle between Russia and Iraq or Iraq and Iran, or, this is all nonsense. Read Revelation 19:20 right to the end of 20 into 21. Read it carefully. When the rider of the white horse comes and there's Gog and Magog, these two groups of people that are against the people of God, there is no battle. It's an execution scene. Yeah. The rider on the white horse says, you're toast, and fire falls from heaven, and the enemies of God's people are done. Not a battle at all. An execution, according to the book of Revelation. So I am simply telling you, you can't read the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Denver whatever and then compare that to the book of Revelation and say, now I know what's happening. Why not? Because the more things change in a fallen world in human history, the more they stay the same. And these symbols are generic and universal. It's always going to be that way. And Christians are not going to be exempt from the suffering. Why would you think that the last generation of Christians on earth before Jesus returns is exempt from suffering or even dying for their faith when no generation before us has been exempt. It's the book of the martyrs. It's telling us, be prepared to be faithful even unto the end, even if you have to suffer like the great martyrs of the church. Do not worry. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you shall fear no evil, not because there is an evil to fear, but because I am with you all the way through to eternity. I think that's one of the things that surprises so many people about the book of Revelation is if you sit down and read it start to finish, one of the things that's noticeably absent is an escape hatch for the people of God. You know, some sort of quick exit out of this world. But Christians, especially in the last couple hundred years, uh, a lot of Christians in the last couple hundred years have taken passages from 1 Thessalonians and from Matthew 24, and they've advocated for something called the rapture. Uh, it's this idea that Jesus is going to have sort of a, a, a partial coming back, and then he's going to take all of God's people out, and then things are going to get really bad, and then he's going to come back for good another time. 
Dr. Witherton, would you tell us where did this idea come from and, and how should those passages actually be better understood? Well, the first thing to tell you is that before the 17th century, exactly no Christian commentator ever thought there was going to be a pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation rapture. This is an idea that arose in Baptist circles in the 17th century and then became popular in the 19th century when a teenage girl claimed to have a vision at a revival, her name was McDonald in Glasgow, and said there's going to be a pre-tribulation rapture. And nobody might have paid any attention except that Mr. Darby was there, the founder of the Plymouth Brethren. And even then it might have come and gone, but in fact he went to America as an evangelist and enlisted Dwight L. Moody. Now that name should ring a bell. And Moody came to believe this theology and embrace it and he was the Billy Graham of his day, and he spread it all over the middle of the United States. And then it was encoded into the Schofield Reference Bible, and then we were really off and running with this theology. Now, it is a theology that no Catholic has embraced, no Orthodox has embraced, and only some Protestants have embraced, and it involves a pretty gross misreading of the Bible. So three things about this. Let's talk about the two at the grinding mill, one is taken and one is left behind, because the name of the series was, of course, the Left Behind series. And what I'm going to tell you this morning is that the Left Behind series should be left behind, okay? So, two grinding at a mill, one is taken, one is left behind. Two on a roof, one is taken, one is left behind. Jesus draws an analogy in Matthew 24 with the time of Noah and the flood. He says it's going to be in that day like it was during the time of the flood. Now, I want you to think about the flood story. Who was taken away by the flood? Well, it was the sinful lost persons. Who was left behind and saying, well, I'm glad that's behind us. That would be Noah and his family. It's good to be left behind. Oh, well, then what does it mean when it says two are at the grinding mill one is taken and the other left behind. The one who's in big trouble is the one who's taken away for judgment by the authorities. Yep. And the one who's left behind is going, I am so glad I am left behind. So in fact, dispensational ways of talking about this has completely reversed the actual meaning of those texts. The most common text used to talk about a rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4. And maybe you could read, can you read that for us? Yes. Do you have that? I don't have it pulled up, but okay. you well, want to summarize it real quick? I'll start talking about it. Okay. First of all, Thessaloniki is a walled city. And when a royal figure, it's named after the sister of Alexander the Great, when a king came to visit the city, he brought his entourage. In front of him would be a herald with a trumpet. They'd come down the road to the big city, the, the, the herald would blow the trumpet. Open up ye gates, lift up ye gates, be open your ancient door so the king of glory may come in. And then the watchman on the wall says, who is the king of glory? Who, you know, stand and identify. So what happens in this scenario is that when they're satisfied, it's really the king and his entourage who's come to town to visit. Well, then the greeting committee from the city goes out to meet the king and then welcomes the king back into the city. Now, that is the picture Paul is painting when Christ returns. There's an angel blowing a trumpet. 
By the way, this is a very public, noisy event. It's even louder than the praise band. Are you with me now? Okay. Are you getting the picture now? Okay. It's a big public. This, there's nothing secretive or, or invisible about yeah. this. It's a loud public event. The king is coming back. We need to go out and meet him. Well, where are you going to meet him if he's coming from heaven? You're going to meet him in the air. Nothing in that text says a word about heaven. Even the word for heaven is not there. Uranus. It's just you're meeting him in the air. And we all know where the air is. It's kind of thin <laughs> right up on top of Pike's Peak. Okay? Are you getting the picture? So the picture is that... Those who are raised from the dead when Christ comes and those who are living when he comes go out to meet the king in the air and then return with him to reign upon the earth. No rapture. No taking you out. No beam me up, Scotty. Just meet the Lord and return with him to earth so that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, finally happens when Jesus returns. There's not going to be two returns of Christ. There's only going to be one. The churches yep. only believe in one parousia or second coming of Christ, the visible return, which brings everything to climax. So read them this text. So the passage is this. It says, this is because the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the signal of a shout by the head angel and a blast on God's trumpet. And first, those who are dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are living and still around will be taken up together with them in the clouds or in the air to meet with the Lord in the air. That that, that, that way we will always be with the Lord. So encourage each other with these words. Now, and the Thessalonians would have known perfectly well what's next. What's next is he's not taking you up to heaven. What's next is he's coming down to rule. Because again, look at the imagery. Where did they go when the greeting committee came out of the walled city and met the king on the road? They didn't go back down the road where the king came from. They went into the city to celebrate the king's visit, the royal visit of the king. So every single reader of 1 Thessalonians in the first century knew perfectly well what Paul was talking about. And what it wasn't was a pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation rapture. There is no beam me up Scotty in the New Testament. So in the midst of all of that, Dr. Wither, to kind of close this up and bring us to the table, and was thinking through all of these things that we look at Revelation then, where, how do we understand as Christians hope and how are we called to kind of live in the middle of these things while we wait for that great return of Christ? Well, several things. You know, I cited for you Romans 8 about that the Lord will always be with us and that no outside circumstance, no harm, no disease, no person can rip you out of the loving hands of Jesus Christ. Did you hear me? Yeah. No circumstance outside of yourself, no third person, no third thing, no event, no fire, no earthquake, can snatch you out of the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you. Yeah. And therefore, you have assurance that he will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death, even if it ends in death. And he will walk you right into eternity beyond that as well. So as I said at the beginning, the book of Revelation 
reveals enough about the future to give us hope, but not so much that we don't have to live by faith every single day, knowing that Jesus is always with us. Indeed, Christ in us is the hope of, the hope glory. of glory, and we can all name and claim that promise. Yes, amen. Everyone, can you thank Dr. Witherington for being here with us this morning? Dr. Witherington, thank you so much. If you want to go ahead and grab your communion elements, we're going to come to the table with, with this hope, that the one who gave himself for us, the one who ascended into heaven, and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, this is the same Jesus that will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is the one whose kingdom will have no end, no matter how many beastly empires and beastly rulers wreak havoc upon this planet, we have great hope that Jesus will return and he will make everything right and true and good and beautiful and perfect again. And we will live and reign with him forever and ever. And as Dr. Witherington said, part of the book of Revelation is meant to bring us to repentance to bring us to a place of recognizing our need for this Jesus. And so let's pray this prayer of confession as we come to the table this morning. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Friends, tonight we remember the night that he gave himself up for us, our Lord Jesus took bread. When he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is a cup of the new covenant my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so we remember today that these are the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. And let's join our hands together, or sorry, join our hearts together. We can't join hands right now. Let's join our hearts together in prayer as we pray. Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes again in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the body of Christ given for you. the blood of Christ given for you. Now would you stand this morning as those who've been resurrected with Christ and are waiting final resurrection and let's sing this song about the overcoming love of God that we overcome because he has overcome for us.
friends, that is the good news. That's the gospel. Because Jesus overcame. Because Jesus overcame, we will overcome. Because Jesus reigns victorious because Jesus suffered and died and was raised from the dead because Jesus is coming back. We have hope. I want to say again a special thank you to Dr. Witherington for being with us this morning. If you're interested in finding out more about our partnership with Asbury Seminary, they've got Sarah Scapins. I don't know if Sarah's here in the room. Uh, she is a new lifer and she is their full-time employee for Asbury helping us uh, coordinate that site. She's going to be in the lobby at a table. You can go and talk to her there. Kiddos, great job today. Well done. Well done, you guys. Well, as we're standing, I think we should sing the doxology before we go. Don't you agree? All right, let's sing one more time with all of our souls. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great to see you all. Thank you for being here. Have a wonderful week.